If you got a Bible, uh, meet me in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. If you are new to Regen, we tend to kind of pick a book of the Bible and just work through it, not necessarily line by line, but at least chunk by chunk. And we take breaks here and there for topics or this kind of thing, but like our bread and butter as a church is what we call Netflix binging a book of the Bible, right? We just binge watch one whole book of the Bible at a time. And so we've been binge watching the book of Acts. John Wesley uh, founded the Methodist movement in the 1700s. Uh, he was a minister in the Church of England, and at that time in the Church of England, it was very, very formal. You only went to church if you like, were dressed to the nines, which in that cultural moment meant like, probably like, I don't know, a cummerbund and a cravat, cravat and I don't know, Downton Abbey clothes, right? Um, which meant only certain economic classes of people could go to church, right? Because you uh, only have so much money, you can't spend it on that. And so really religion, Christianity in England became something for the upper crust society. And John Wesley didn't think like that was the heart of Jesus. And so John Wesley uh, started preaching to coal miners as they left for their shift. And he would preach in fields to farmers and gather huge crowds and tons of people were being saved and he was totally made fun of he was he was called uh, reviled he was reviled he was called ugly he was called ugly names and in one of his journals he said at four in the afternoon i submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation amy simple mcpherson anybody know her Okay, a couple. The Pentecostals in the room know Amy Semple McPherson. Amy Semple McPherson uh, founded one of the first Pentecostal denominations called the Foursquare Church. Uh, Amy Semple McPherson uh, started pastoring and leading a church in the Hollywood area right around the advent of radio and television. And so they would do these television specials that were just elaborate, crazy costumes and scenery and music. And she would like descend from the ceiling on ropes and like preach, I'm not kidding, and like preach the gospel and tell these Bible stories. And they were fanfares and they were these huge events. Footnote, Amy Semple McPherson, a little crazy, faked her death to ran off with a man. So, you know, do you take the good with the bad? Um, Amy Semple McPherson, um, Billy Graham, uh, Billy Graham, uh, the younger you are, the less likely you are to know about him. The more unchurched you are, the less likely you are to know about him. But like a guy who would gather tens of thousands in stadiums to preach the gospel. Um, and Billy Graham originated what was called the altar call, right? That he would say, if you would like to place your faith in Jesus Christ tonight, would you come down to the altar and be prayed for? So people in droves would come down and be prayed for. My father-in-law is a Christian because of the Billy Graham thing. And um, in churches, uh, there are nightclub churches in London that meet at three in the morning. Um, and all of their music is dance techno music. And they're, and they're trying to reach the people that are up in the middle of the night, let's be honest, probably coked out of their heads to bring the gospel to them. There are churches that meet in the financial districts of large urban cities, uh, and they meet in the middle of the day over the lunch hour to try to reach white collar professionals working on Wall Street. What all of these people and ministries have in common is they saw people that weren't being reached with the good news of Jesus, and so they contextualized the gospel to reach them. What does contextualize mean? 
It means shaping the gospel message, articulating the good news of Jesus in such a way that it is an understandable to a particular group of people. They were contextualizing the gospel. What all of these people also have in common is that detractors said that the converts that were made under their ministry weren't actually Christians. That the methods they were using invalidated the conversions and salvations that they were reporting in their ministries. This is exactly what Acts chapter 15 is about. Acts chapter 15 is about a mission that has become remarkably fruitful to Gentiles, to non-Jews, and to conservative Jews in the Jesus movement at this time saying their salvation isn't real. Imagine if someone came into the back of church today. This is real. Imagine if someone came into the back of church today and said, if you have a tattoo, you aren't saved. Sorry, Tim. Uh, imagine if uh, someone came to the back of the church and said, women, uh, if, if you're wearing pants, you clearly aren't saved. We're going to see that the issues in front of us today, the questions of how do we contextualize the gospel to a people that don't know Jesus, and how do we know when we've gone too far, or how do we know if we've gone far enough? That's the exact questions that Acts chapter 15 is asking. Acts chapter 15 is called the theological center of the book of Acts. It is smack dab in the middle of the story. Luke puts it there intentionally. The action of the rest of the book hangs in the balance of what happens here in Acts 15 at an event scholars call the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. So I want us to look at what happens at the Jerusalem Council and I want us to think about as a movement of disciple makers, what does it look like for us to poise to reach our friends and family, because here's what we're saying. Our vision is to give everyone in our neighborhoods and networks, in our workplaces and in our families, an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news. I say that on a regular basis because I know that I can be perceived to move on too quickly from things, not this. This is where we're gonna camp out for the next three years. And so to do that means we're gonna to have to contextualize the gospel. To do that means we have to remain distinct from culture. To do that means I have to keep you uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable. To do that means we have to prioritize the mission first. How do we do that? That's what Acts 15 is all about. So look with me at Acts 15, starting in verse one. It says, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea, and I remember Paul and Barnabas, they'd gone out on a missionary journey sent by this church in Antioch of Syria. They went out, they've come back at the end of 14. We found out that they're camping out there for a while. It says, some men from Judea, down by Jerusalem, arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Yikes. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Now, I think that little sentence is kind of like when a White House press secretary says, the conversations between Republican Democrats are productive. <laughs> arguing vehemently, I think it was ugly. And it should be. This is about who's saved and who isn't right? This isn't about the color of the carpet or what kind of music you like to sing in church. This is about who is in the covenant family and who is outside of the covenant family. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Of course they did. They just had a fruitful mission to the Gentiles and didn't tell them they need to be circumcised. So what, are you going to send me back? 
You're going to send me back to Pisidian Antioch. You're going to send me back to Pamphylia. You're going to send me back to Lystra. You're going to tell me, hey, guys, I brought some scissors. <laughs> Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. They need to go talk to, their, they need to, go talk to mom and dad. They got to go back home. This is too real. We've got to go back to Jerusalem. We've got to go talk to the leaders of leaders and ask them, what are we going to do about this? So Paul and Barnabas head down there. But I, I want to talk about this line. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas have just arrived back from a missions trip where dozens on dozens of hundreds, if not thousands of Gentiles have become Christians. And now Jewish believers. Remember, the early church was primarily Jewish. Jesus' first followers were all Jewish men and women. The 120 gathered in the house at the beginning of the book of Acts are all Jews. Messianic Jews is what we would call them. And as the early church grew, it kept being Jewish until Acts chapter 8, when, when Philip preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch, until some Samaritans, some half-breed Jewish people, sort of like mudbloods in Harry Potter, they, they place their faith in Jesus. And then in Acts 10, horror of horrors, Cornelius, a Gentile, invites Peter into his home. Peter comes, he enters, he eats, he touches them. These are things that Gentiles don't do, but these Gentiles are saved. But now what we're saying to these dozens of thousands of Gentile converts, non-Jewish converts, is that you need to be circumcised and not just circumcised. The whole weight of the law of Moses, you have to follow it in order to be saved. You have to follow it to be a Christian. These conservative Jews are saying, hey, listen, we came into the covenant family this way. We followed all the rules of the law of Moses. We didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. We were circumcised. We did all of these things. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to be like us. You need to enter this way too. And what Luke records here, it may be thousands of years old, but this reads just like a YouTube comment section. This reads just like a Facebook argument. This reads just like the arguments some of you have had in churches. You aren't saved if you've let a woman preach to you. You aren't saved unless you speak in tongues. You're not saved unless you're a five and a half point Calvinist. You're not saved unless... This is real because some of you uh, have had your salvation called into question. Two months after we baptized my son Jack in May of 2019, when he was a little after he was born, um, and uh, two months later we were at my in-laws church in South Dakota, uh, hanging out with them, and the pastor got up and said, "Well, I'd planned to. Well, it wasn't the pastor; it was some other guy. And well, I planned on preaching about this, but God woke me up in the night, and I knew I needed to preach on that instead." That is a warning sign, just FYI, you know. You always go with plan A, all right? Um, so he preached a sermon on baptism, on how, and, and, and literally said in that sermon that anyone who baptizes their babies, I'm quoting, are demonically deceived. I leaned over to my father-in-law and I said, well, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> right? This is real. These are the fights that Christians have, which by the way, there may be some good news to know that like we barely had a church for like a decade and we were having a church fight, right? Because we have a tendency, don't we, to think, well, if we could just go back to when the church was pure, everything would be fine. Well, clearly, church was never that pure to begin with. 
These teachers are talking about circumcision, but again, remember that they are talking about the entirety of the law of Moses. And they're saying to these Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to follow all of these rules. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, no, no. That's not how this is going to work. That's not how the faith of Jesus is going to work now. And the argument becomes so intense that they decide to go down to Jerusalem to talk to the elders and the apostles about it. We've got to go home. We've got to go to the first church. We've got to get into it. Now, circumcision is what your counselor or your doctor would call a presenting issue. When you go to a counselor, you say, I'm really anxious. They say, they think in their heads, that's the presenting issue. What's the real issue? You've all been to therapy, right? It's always something your mom and dad did. Sorry, guys, you know. <laughs> um, your doctor, you're going, I'm really struggling with this thing, right? I went in, I went in, you know, in the winter, I was short of breath, not COVID, not this, not that. A few months later, find out, plot twist, Kyle's allergic to rice. That is awful. Um, that's the real issue. There's a difference between the presenting issue and the real issue. And the real issue is not circumcision. The real issue is, it, the real issue is this. A scholar put it this way. The rapid progress of Gentile evangelization in Antioch and further afield presented the more conservative Jewish believers with a serious problem. The apostles had allowed Peter's action in the house of Cornelius as a one-off. But now a new situation confronted them. Before long, there would be more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians in the world. Many Jewish Christians no doubt feared that the influx of so many converts from paganism would bring about a weakening of the church's moral standard. And if you read Paul's letters, it proves true. Paul has to write all these letters to all of these churches that have these influx of Gentiles who live immorally, who live licentiously, who live foolishly, who live hopelessly. He's got to reel them back because their immorality is lowering the, the common, making the lower common denominator even lower. Have you ever noticed you get a group of guys together and all they can do is talk about poop? Because God forbid we talk about like something that's going on inside of us for a minute, right? Something, you know, that we talk about something real. What they're worried about is the lowest common denominator getting even lower. If tomorrow our church tripled with people with no Christian background, we would all burn out in like a month. because of the discipleship questions that we would have to be answering and, 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 and the, the decisions based on foolishness and hopelessness and deception that people would have been making. This is real. This is a fair question. The conservative Jews are trying to keep the standard high. They're arguing for holiness and distinctiveness among God's people. They want the Gentiles admitted to the covenant family. They do. They're, they're in favor of the Gentiles coming in. They want them here, but they're saying they just got to enter in this way like the rest of us did. But again, this isn't about the color of the carpet or hymns versus contemporary music versus this versus that. It's, it's about salvation. It's about who's in and who is out. That's why they have to go back to Jerusalem and they get there. And in my mind's eye, I see Paul and Barnabas on the road to Jerusalem. And Paul is amped up. He is like ready for a fight. Paul's probably the smartest dude in the room, right? He has all of the answers. And here's what I think Barnabas is doing. Barnabas is like, I know you have all the right answers. 
I know you know all the stupid things. You know those people? There's smart people that know the stupid thing you're about to say before you say it, and they already have the answer ready for the stupid thing you're going to say before you say it. That's what Paul is, right? And Barnabas is like, I know that you know all the right answers. I know that you know this. I need you to chill out. We're going to let, we're going to let the apostles do the heavy lifting because, Paul, they still don't know who you are. In fact, if you look uh, in this passage, they're referred to as Barnabas and Paul, not Paul and Barnabas, because Barnabas has the street cred. Barnabas has the street cred. They think Paul's still a double agent. It was like 10 seconds ago that he was murdering people, so we're really going to listen to Paul preach to us? I don't think. It's okay if he goes, does this Gentile thing. So they get there, and they have this conversation, and Luke records the conversation in Acts 15 around three speeches. Three speeches. Well, two speeches, and then one that's summarized. The first speech is by Peter. Peter entered the house of Cornelius. His speech... Starts in verse 7, Peter stood and says, Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God? Okay, don't get on that side of that fight. Not... Why are you challenging God? By burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. That verse 10, that's really important because the very reason that Jesus came was the insufficiency of the law of Moses. The law of Moses that just sought, by adhering to it, just revealed the sinfulness of God's people Israel. And so Jesus came to fulfill the law and to create a new and life-giving way. And now they're saying, uh, it's kind of like a misery loves company thing, right? Uh, where I went to school, Moody Bible Institute, um, you know, 30 years ago, like, you ha women had to wear, like, full-on dresses to class. By the time I got there, right, like, women could wear, like, <gasps> pants. So, like, the people that have been there 30 years ago were like, you should just be grateful. And I was a student, I thought, I'll never be like that. Until they opened a Target two blocks away from campus. Do you know how long I would have to ride the L to get there and then cart back with all my stuff on the L, people looking at me to target? These students don't know how good they have it. <laughs> Moody Bible Institute. It's kind of like that, only like more painful in sensitive areas and, and more burdensome in what you are and aren't allowed to do. And so Peter says, why would we burden them with something that we weren't able to bear? Why would we burden them essentially with something that Jesus came to set us free from? He says in verse 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And with that, by the way, Peter disappears from the book of Acts. It's like his work is done. He said what he needed to say. We can focus on other things now. We are all saved by the undeserved grace of Jesus. Verse 12, it says that Barnabas and Paul uh, told about the miraculous signs and wonders. Luke doesn't record it because he already has in chapters 13 and 14. And then, and then in, uh, verse uh, in verse 13, it says, When they had finished, James stood up and said, Brothers, listen to me. And when James stood up to speak, everybody listened. James is the half-brother of Jesus. But that's not why people listen to him. James, it took him a little while to convert to the way of Jesus, which makes sense. I mean, he grew up with Jesus in Egypt. Like, he grew up smelling Jesus' farts, you know? 
Um, of course, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but eventually he does. And it's not his biological relationship with Jesus that gives James such spiritual capital. It's his relationship marked by prayer and deep faith. The witness of the early church, the witness of the early church fathers was that James was the real deal. So James stands up and he says, Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take them as a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles, listen to this, is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward, I will return and I will restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. Why are you going to do that, Lord? Verse 17, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. Yahweh has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. Verse 19, James says, after that was a quote from Amos 9, James says, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Underline that if it's in your own Bible. Underline it in your neighbor's Bible. My judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. A better way to say it might be, we should not make it more difficult than necessary. Paul says in one of his letters that the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. So let's not make it more offensive. Jesus says, my way is a narrow way. Let's not make it more narrow. Any more narrow than it has to be. Now, notice he also doesn't say we should make it easy for Gentiles who are turning to God. He does not say, let's lower our theological standards so it doesn't really matter anymore. This is not an invitation to deconstruction. We'll get to that in a second. Instead, here's why it's not an invitation to deconstruction, because we're still challenged. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols. In other words, stop practicing idolatry. From sexual immorality from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. No idolatry, no sexual immorality, no blood, no strangled animals. I mean, I'm definitely here for the last two, right? Unfortunately, vampires, not welcome in the covenant family, no eating blood. Um, for these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many, many generations. James's his argument is out of the old covenant it's out of Amos and in doing so he speaks so clearly uh, to the Jews these conservative Jews that are trying to kind of hold this high standard because it's clear from the book of Amos that God has always desired to include Gentiles in his covenant family so James says let's not make it difficult for them let's not make it any more difficult than it needs to be for them James says essentially listen to this James says this is where I start to get in trouble James says that the outsiders matter more than the comfort of the insider that if there is preference to be given it is those who are not here yet instead of those who are here 
But at the very same time, James says we don't do that by means of lowering our theological standard because God's people, no matter what, are still called to be distinct. He says these laws have been preached in every synagogue and every Sabbath everywhere. He says these are the things that mark us out as God's people. And a world totally given over to idolatry and a world totally given over to sexual immorality, we set ourselves apart by being sexually restrained, sexually holy, and by worshiping one God and one God only. He calls for distinctness. And in calling for that distinctness, it's, he's not just throwing a bone to the insiders. He's extending them hospitality so that when Jews and Gentiles sit down at a table, the Gentile isn't freaking them out by eating a steak that was just offered to Aphrodite. Right? There's an extension of hospitality to those on the inside, even as there is a preference given to those on the outside. The conclusion that the early church comes to is this. Let's not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. When given a choice between making the gospel accessible to outsiders or keeping insiders happy, we make the gospel accessible to outsiders. But at the same time, we have to do that without watering down the gospel, without lowering the theological standard, without making the way of Jesus wider or more narrow than it already is. So here's an example. Um, today, I am actually slightly better dressed than most people in this gathering, right? Uh, but there have been many people that have told me I am the first pastor that they've ever had preached to them that does not wear a suit. I mean, I think we can all be thankful that I'm wearing something. Um, and, and, and I wear, I have photo evidence. People like to take pictures. When I do a funeral, when I do a wedding, I wear a suit. If I must. <laughs> but the rest of the time, I dress, pair of jeans, and a shirt. Why? This is a contextualizing decision. Because as the median income of our area gets lower, right, as our culture becomes more casual, some of you have gone to funerals and noticed that there will be somebody there like wearing a pair of jeans and like a t-shirt. That is their Sunday best. For some. Right? And so what I'm trying to do is not have somebody walk in our door and have me dressed 20 steps higher than them, or for that matter, to wear like a clergy robe. Right? Um, I have worn those once in my entire life. I will wear them one more time and never again. Okay? Um, why? There was a time, by the way, that both of those decisions, wearing a suit or wearing a clergy robe, were contextual decisions that helped us reach the culture better. Now, not so. So I wear a pair of jeans, sandals sometimes. Here's what I don't do. I don't wear a hoodie with crumpled cargo shorts and with my hair undone. I don't cuss from the pulpit, right? Why? I'm trying to balance, to hold intention this contextualization and this distinctiveness. Because I'll tell you what, speaking of distinctiveness, it's not like I'm going to come here and give you like a 10-minute devotional on God, is, God loves you, so be nice. We'll see you next week. I'm probably going to preach for 30 to 40 minutes and like slam it in your face with the love and grace of Jesus. <laughs> distinctiveness, contextualization. Really what we see in this passage I can't tell if it's four principles or two principles, but there's this principle of contextualizing the gospel so that the people on the outside, we can make it understandable and clear to them. This principle of prioritizing the mission, I used to say, and I would get in a lot of trouble, that the most important person in the room is the person who's not here yet. 
prioritizing the mission. On the other hand, there's this tension of we can't contextualize the gospel so much that we lose its distinctive flavor, that it causes us to start to look like the rest of our culture. We, 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 we can't prioritize outsiders to the neglect of insiders. So there's this tension that the church in various times, in various ways, has tried and often failed to navigate that tension. So for example, there's a missionary um, in the 1800s whose name's James Hudson Taylor. If you ever get an email from me, I have a quote from him at the bottom of my email. Um, James Hudson Taylor shocked other Western missionaries because uh, he dressed like a Chinese person instead of dressing like a Westerner. I've talked to retired missionaries from Southeast Asia to confirm the truth of what I'm saying to you, so that's true. He also tried to liken the gospel of Jesus, take principles from there, and liken them to principles from Taoism, which was a popular philosophy and religion at the time in China. Some felt like he went too far, in particular with the theological movements that he made. Some might say he didn't go far enough. Um, in the late 80s, a guy named Bill Hybels, who's now kind of had a fall from ministry, but Bill Hybels did something that nobody else ever had really done at the time. Bill Hybels went and knocked on thousands of doors in the northwest suburbs of Chicago and asked a disenfranchised Gen X what they were looking for in a church. And they took all of those results and they constructed a ministry based on what was said. So if you've ever been inside, especially back then, like in the 90s, the Willow Creek Church looked like a shopping mall. Like there was a food court, there were fountains, right? And nowhere, nowhere did you ever see a cross. The worship service often began not with like a song of praise or a hymn, but like a song that you'd hear on the radio. They were trying to contextualize the gospel to a generation that was disenfranchised by the church. Did they go too far? My in-laws church uh, in South Dakota, they, they supported another church, like a, a church plant in another state, I think. And the church was called, wait for it, scum of the earth. And they typically reached people that you would, frankly, assume would go to a church called the scum of the earth. <laughs> Just saying, right? So a lot of prostitutes and ex-prostitutes, the line, fuzzy. A lot of drug addicts, ex-drug addicts, fuzzy. A lot of like leather, like a lot of um, motorcycles in the parking lot. Super fruitful ministry to a group of people who, let's get real, aren't walking in here on Sunday morning, right? The pastor cussed from the pulpit on the regular. You guys, the look of horror that just across your faces is <laughs> precious. But think about the people that he's reaching. They use cuss words to talk about the weather. But over time, the cussing seemed to begin to like, reveal maybe like some questionable moral stuff happening at the church. Are we really holding the standard of the gospel high? Did they contextualize the gospel too much? Did they lose distinctiveness? They certainly ruffled the feathers of the church back in South Dakota, or at least my parents thought they were pretty cool. They just didn't want to have to go to that church. You know what I'm saying? Contextualization in our cultural moment goes by a different name. It goes by deconstruction. Jettisoning certain parts of the gospel that we find 
frustrating. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. I referred you back to that sermon. But just to say, like, how far is too far? Like, the doctrine of hell? Sexuality questions? The authority of scripture? God's sovereignty? Like, where is too far? At what point have you ceased being a Christian if you don't believe the kinds of things that Jesus himself believed? On the very opposite end of that spectrum, by the way, we've been talking about this contextualizing side, but let's talk about this distinctiveness side. We've all driven by these teeny tiny little Baptist churches with five cars in the parking lot. We may be small, but we are faithful. They're the only right ones in Christendom with their KJV-only Bibles. Do you know there's churches that do that, King James Version only? You know, there's, you know, we, we sing the right songs. Do you know that there's some churches that say singing with any instrument, any instrument is unbiblical. We're the right ones. So they've got this distinctiveness, and I got to tell you, but here's the funny thing. Even with all that distinctiveness, they are fighting like cats and dogs in there. There ain't no hospitality being offered to one another, and there sure isn't any mission right? And so they're stagnant, they're plateauing, they're declining, but they're faithful. They're the persecuted minority. These are the tensions that we have to hold together because we all know churches that emphasize distinctiveness, but they have no fruit. People are biblically formed and biblically rooted, but they they haven't bumped into a non-Christian with intention in decades. And so They've forgotten those on the outside. They, they, they have forgotten, uh, they, they, or in their distinctiveness, in order to become part of that, you have to basically become a Jew. You have to follow so many strict rules of certain things to get into that community. Listen, with too much focus on contextualization, we, we can lose the gospel. We can lose the gospel's truthfulness. With too much distinctiveness, we overburden those who are trying to turn to God. With too much focus on the outside, we leave the insiders feeling neglected. With too much focus on the insiders, too much focus on hospitality toward one another, not ruffling each other's feathers, we forget those on the outside. Here's my goal as your pastor. My goal is that you live in our church with a low-grade fever of discomfort. I want you to have a 98.9-99.1 degree fever of discomfort at all times. Okay? Now what spikes your fever may not be what spikes your fever may not be what spikes your fever, so then we can all kind of walk together, can't we? But if that fever spikes to 103.5 over a decision that we're making, Houston, we have a problem, and now I and the elders and the staff, we gotta walk it back a little bit, right? But if you're looking for a church to keep you comfortable, I am sorry, my friend, this is not the place. Because it's that low-grade fever of discomfort that I think comes from holding all of these things in tension together. But how do we know? I mean, we're saying our vision is to help everyone in our neighborhoods and networks, to give them an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. We're going to have to do some contextualizing. How do we know when we've gone too far? We're going to have to remain distinct from our culture. One of the best witnesses that we give in the world in this cultural moment is an alternate ethic, is the culture zigs we zag. We're distinct from the culture. How do we do that without overburdening the outsider, without freaking out the insider? And it comes down to living under the authority of God's word and a reliance on the spirit. That's exactly how the early church comes to this conclusion in Acts chapter 15, word and spirit, right? 
because James' speech is word for word out of Isaiah 9. When Paul is out preaching to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13, he quotes from Isaiah, you will be a light to the nations, he quotes. It is the clear imperative of scripture that causes them to contextualize the gospel to Gentiles. It is also reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who gives Peter a vision of what is clean and what is unclean that causes him to preach to Cornelius. It is Cornelius prompted by the Holy Spirit that goes and seeks Peter out. Paul comes sharing testimonies of what the Holy Spirit has done while they've been out on this missions trip. And look at verse uh, 28 of chapter 15. Because after they come to this conclusion, they say, okay, we're going to write a letter. We're going to send it back to the church in Antioch so they know what we're talking about. And this is what verse 28 says to us. They recount their decision-making process. And they say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We like to make a lot of decisions even in churches. Oh, that seems good to us. Doesn't always seem good to the Holy Spirit, does it? Problem is often what's good to the Holy Spirit makes you kind of go, oh. seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. It is through a dependence on the word of the spirit and when we overblow it on contextualization i mean deconstruction begins with that can't mean what the bible says it means that's where it starts right and then we become insiders when there's no dependence on the holy spirit who is given to us who is given to us with the express purpose of mission you will receive the holy spirit and then you will all sit in this room and it'll be really cute and really cuddly and nobody else will ever join you and kumbaya to the ends of the earth no you will you will the holy spirit will come upon you and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth the holy spirit is given to us out of a missional impulse for the people of god and the Holy Spirit, John Calvin says, can't go where the word doesn't go and the word can't go where the Holy Spirit doesn't go. It is by living under the authority of scripture and under dependence of the Holy Spirit that we have a missional movement that is fruitful, that contextualizes, that is distinct, that prioritizes the outsider while caring for the insider. Here's a little pop quiz. You ready for a pop quiz? Who is more important? In a church life, who gets most attention? insiders outsiders or both how many of you say insiders well nobody's going to say that now that i've been preaching okay so how many of you say outsiders how many of you say both you're wrong <laughs> let me tell you why the squeaky wheel the squeaky wheel always gets the grease I don't go into Nova Coffee Company and they say, man, Kyle, you've not visited me in a really long time. I feel forgotten by you. That's what Christians tell me though. I don't, I feel forgotten. I wish, I wish I was visited more, right? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. People out in our community aren't saying, man, I wish Regen would evangelize me more. It's the word and the spirit that then helps us navigate that. It's preaching that moves us to action, right? It's Bible studies that don't just grow us in information, but that catalyze transformation. It's worship nights that aren't about seeing, uh, seeing an experience or feeling the tingles. It's worship nights that bring us into an encounter with the presence of God that 
create an unrelenting force to drive us outward so that other people would know that presence too. It's both. It's both. And as for me and my house, as for me and my house, I will make myself even more vile by preaching in the highways and the byways. Amen? Amen. Randy, you could come lead us in response time. And then we'll do communion together. You're saying it just makes my faith rise. So thanks for that. I love you. Go and be the distinct people that Jesus has called to himself. Be different. Be weird. Be odd. Be offensive. But not too much. <laughs> be the hands and feet of Jesus. We'll see you soon. Grace and peace.